Hi, and welcome back to Chronicles The Hundred Years War. Thanks for joining me for episode 11, where we're going to see a bit of a conclusion to the English dispute with Scotland over Scottish raiding. Now, when we last touched on this discussion, I mentioned that the English had forced the Scots to retreat back into England but hadn't really done anything to stop them from coming back and raiding again. And in this chapter, we're going to see exactly why there was a bit of a pause in that case. So let's go ahead and quickly just jump right into that, as it's a bit of a long chapter, and I want to make sure we get through it. Chapter 20, How King Robert of Scotland Died And when the Scots were departed by night from the mountains, whereas the king had besieged them, and ye have heard here before, they went twenty-two mile through the savage country without resting, and passed the river of Tyne right near Carlisle. And the next day they went into their own land, and so departed every man to his own mansion. And within a space after, there was peace purchased between the kings of England and Scotland. And as the English chronicle saith, was done by the special council of the old queen and Sir Roger Mortimer. For by their means there was a parliament holden at Northampton, at which the king, being within age, granted to the Scots to release all their fealties and homages that they ought to have done to the crown of England, by his charter and seals. And also there was delivered to the Scots an indenture, which was called the Ragman, wherein was contained all the homages and fealties that the king of Scots and all the prelates, earls and barons of Scotland, ought to have done to the crown of England, sealed with all their seals, within all other rights that sundry barons and knights ought to have had in the realm of Scotland. And also they delivered to them again the Black Cross of Scotland, the which the good King Edward conquered and brought it out of the Abbey of Scone, the which was a precious relic, and all rights and interests that every baron had in Scotland was then clean forgiven. And many other things were done at that Parliament the great hurt and prejudice of the realm of England, and in manner against the wills of all the nobles of the realm, save only of Isabel, the old queen, and the bishop of Lye, and the lord Mortimer. And they ruled the realm in such wise that every man was miscontent, so that the earl, Henry of Lancaster, and Sir Thomas Brotherton, Earl Marshall, and Sir Edmund of Woodstock, the king's uncle, and diverse other lords and commoners were agreed together to amend these faults, if they might. And in that meantime, the Queen Isabel and Sir Roger Mortimer caused another parliament to be holden at Salisbury, at the which parliament Sir Roger Mortimer was made Earl of March against all the barons' wills of England, in prejudice of the king and his realm, and Sir John of Eltham, the king's brother, was made Earl of Cornwall, to the which parliament the Earl Henry of Lancaster would not come. Wherefore, the king was brought in belief that he would have destroyed his person, for the which they assembled a great host and went towards Bedford, whereas the Earl Henry was with his company. Then the Earl Marshal and the Earl of Kent, the king's uncle, made peace between the king and the Earl of Lancaster, on whose part was Sir Henry Lord Beaumont, Sir Fulk Fitzwarren, Sir Thomas Rousselian, Sir William Trussell, Sir Thomas Withel, and about a hundred knights, who were all expelled out of England by the council of Queen Isabel and the Earl Mortimer, for he was so covetous that he thought to have the most part of all their lands into his own hands, as it is more plainly showed in the English Chronicle, to which I pass over and follow mine author. Let's pause there for a second. The chapter's not done. 
and we haven't even made it to Robert's death yet, but a lot's happened in those couple of paragraphs. First of all, peace has been purchased again, but it's been purchased for a dear price. One of the things that Edward I managed to succeed in doing in his lifetime was he made it so that even if it was only by a loose legal claim, and even if it was only sort of something that happened on paper rather than reality, Edward had made it that Scotland was subject to England. Scotland had become a vassal kingdom, in theory at least. The handing over of relics, the renouncing of any kind of claim that Scots must do homage to the English is Scottish independence in a legal sense. And it is a very real announcement and it's a very real public announcement that the English don't have the power to control the Scots. They don't have the power to rule them. And that's a very big get for Scotland. And it's very understandable that the English lords don't like the fact that they don't technically own Scotland anymore. B, don't like that they are no longer receiving homage anymore. And C, don't like that the Scots just had all their debts forgiven. That is a huge cost. And it's one that sets them back considerably in the political space as well. Homage is something that you do to say, I am beholden to you. And there are many levels of it, but having that is a claim that you can then return to later on. You have done something that's wronged me. And thus, because you are my subject, I have the legal power to punish you. And if you don't let me do that, that is a legitimate causa belli for me to war or raid or to simply have you removed from your position and have somebody else put in that position. It was the first step of many, but it was a step towards a political and legal stranglehold that would allow the English to force their rule on the Scottish, giving that up pretty bad. The second thing we've got here is that Isabel and Mortimer in their role as regents have just given out a bunch of very major titles, but the king himself is a man who is now married, and though it's not in the chronicle at this point, it's known that Philippa is pregnant, and so he is continuing his own dynastic line. The role of Isabella and Mortimer here is becoming increasingly questionable and the idea that they're now using whatever power they have to just grant Mortimer and the king's brother major titles like the Earl of March is understandably upsetting people. That is not their role anymore and it's also just basically handing out huge amount of money on a regular basis. The fact that they are being called out as then expelling major lords and knights so that they can claim their lands. Not a good look. So definitely things are starting to look a little bit troubled in the English royal family. All right, let's push on. The foresaid peace, which was purchased between England and Scotland, was to endure three years, and in the meantime, it fortuned that King Robert of Scotland was right sore aged and feeble, that he was greatly charged with the great sickness so that there was no way with him but death. And when he felt that his end drew near, he sent for such barons and lords of his realm as he trusted best, and showed them how there was no remedy with him. But he must needs leave his transitory life, commanding them on the faith and truth that they owed him, 
truly so, to keep the realm and aid the young Prince David his son, and that when he were of age, they should obey him and crown him king, and to marry him in such a place as was convenient for his estate. Then he called to him the gentle knight Sir William Douglas, and said before all the lords, Sir William, my dear friend, you know well that I have had much ado in my days to uphold and sustain the right of this realm. And when I had most ado, I made a solemn vow, the which as yet I have not accomplished, whereof I am right sorry, the which was, if I might achieve and make an end of all my wars, so that I might once have brought this realm in rest and peace, then I promised in my mind to have gone and warred on Christ's enemies, adversaries to our holy Christian faith. To this purpose mine heart hath ever intended, but our Lord would not consent thereto. For I have had so much ado in my days, and now in my last enterprise I have taken such a malady that I cannot escape. And sith it is so that my body cannot go, nor achieve that my heart desireth, I will send the heart instead of the body to accomplish mine avow. And because I know not in all my realm no knight more valiant than ye, nor body so well furnished to accomplish mine avow instead of myself. Therefore I require you, mine own dear especial friend, that you will take on this voyage for the love of me, and to equip my soul against my Lord God. For I trust so much in your nobleness and truth, that an ye will take on you, I doubt not, but ye shall achieve it. And declare then, shall I die in more ease and quiet, so that it has been done in such manner as I shall declare unto you. I will that as soon as I am trespassed out of this world, that ye take my heart out of my body and embalm it, and take of my treasure, as ye shall think sufficient for that enterprise, both for yourself and such company as ye will take with you, and present my heart to the, to the holy sepulchre, whereas our Lord lay, seeing my body cannot come there and take with you such company and purveyance as shall be appertaining to your estate. And wheresoever you come, let it be known how ye carry with you the heart of King Robert of Scotland, at his insistence and desire to be presented to the holy sepulchre. Then all the lords heard these words, then all the lords that heard these words wept for pity, and when this night Sir William Douglas might speak for weeping, he said, Ah, gentle and noble king, a hundred times I thank your grace for the great honour that ye do to me, sith of so noble and great treasure ye give me in charge. And, sir, I shall do with a glad heart all that ye have commanded me, to the best of my true power, albeit I am not worthy nor sufficient to achieve such a noble enterprise. Then the king said, Ah, gentle knight, I thank you, so that ye will promise to do it. Sir, said the knight, I shall do it undoubtedly by the faith that I owe to God and to the order of knighthood. Then I thank you, said the king, for now I shall die in more ease of mind, sith that I know the most worthy and sufficient knight of my realm shall achieve for me that which I could never attain unto. And thus soon after this, noble Robert de Bruce, king of Scotland, trespassed out of this uncertain world, and his heart taken out of his body and embalmed, and honourably he was interred in the Abbey of Dunfermline, in the year of our Lord God, M-C-C-C-X-X-V-I-I, the seventh day of the month of November. And when the springtime began, then Sir William Douglas purveyed him of that which appertained for his enterprise, and took his ship 
at the port of Montrose in Scotland, and sailed to Flanders, to Salise, to hear tidings, and to know if there were any noblemen in that country that would go to Jerusalem, to the intent to have more company. And he lay still at Salise the space of twelve days, or he departed, but he would never come a land, but keep still his ship, and kept always his port and behaviour with great triumph, with trumpets and clarions as though he had been king of the Scots himself. And in his company there was a knight banneret and seven other knights of the realm of Scotland, and twenty-six young squires and gentlemen to serve him. And all his vessel was gold and silver, pots, basins, ewers, dishes, flagons, barrels, cups, and all other things. And all such as would come and see him, they were well served with two manner of wines and diverse manner of spices, all manner of people according to their degrees. And when he had thus tarried there the space of twelve days, he heard reported that Alfonso, king of Spain, made war against a Saracen king of Granada. Then he thought to draw to that part, thinking surely he could not bestow this time more nobly than to war against God's enemies. And that enterprise done, then he thought to go forth to Jerusalem and to achieve that he was charged with. And so he departed and took the sea towards Spain and arrived at the port of Valence the Great. Then he went straight to the king of Spain, who held his host against the king of Granada, Saracen, and they were near together on the frontiers of his land. And within a while after that this night, Sir Douglas was come to the king of Spain. On a day the king issued out into the field to approach near his enemies, and the king of Granada issued out in like display, in likewise on his part, so that each king might see other with all their banners displayed. Then they arranged their battles against each other. Then Sir William Douglas drew out on one side with all his company to the intent to show his prowess the better. And when he saw these battles thus ranged on both parties and saw that the battle of the King of Spain began somewhat to advance towards their enemies, he thought then verily that they should soon assemble together to fight at hand strokes. And then he thought rather to be with the foremost than the hindermost and strike his horse with the spurs and all his company also, and dashed into the battle of the king of Granada, crying, Douglas, Douglas, weaning to him the king of Spain, and all his host followed, but they did not, wherefore he was deceived, for the Spanish host stood still, and so this gentle knight was enclosed, and all his company, with the Saracens, whereas he did many marvels in arms, but finally he could not endure, so that he and all his company were slain, the which was great damage that the Spaniards could not rescue them. Also in this season there were certain lords that treated for peace between England and Scotland, so that there was at last a marriage made and solemnized between the young king of Scotland and the dame Joan of the Tower, sister to the king of England at Berwick, as the English chronicle saith, on Mary Maudlin Day, the year of our Lord, M C C C X X V. I, 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 against the ascent of many of the nobles of the realm, but Queen Isabel, the king's mother, and the Earl Mortimer made that marriage, at the which, as mine author saith, there was great feast made on both parties. So to follow on from where we last spoke, not only has Isabel, in her role as Queen Regent, now bought peace by giving Scotland their independence back and renouncing any claim that the English may have had over Scotland or its ability to tax or control Scotland, but now a member of the English royal family 
has been sent to be the wife of King David. Now, this may seem like a good idea to cement peace. If you've already spent so much getting three years out of it, then it makes sense to then just try and push that three years to be into perpetuity. The thing is, when you have a short-term peace treaty like three years, the expectation I feel that the English knights and gentry would have had would be that that three years is used to develop English strength so that it can then go give Scotland the walloping that they feel it deserves in order to then take back everything that they had been forced to renounce. Even if they only held this suzerainty of Scotland for a very short period, people are very quick to feel entitled to these things, like it is something that they own and should never be forced to give up. The other thing is, is we've spoken a lot of times about masculine virtue and that idea of being a warrior who goes out and claims these things and does these great deeds in order to make sure that you're building renown, you are seizing lands, you are making a name for yourself. And when you pair that with what we talked about last week with groups feeling wronged and the idea of the group reacting, it's politically poor, I feel, to then say, well, even though the group feels wrong and there is a social pressure that we should strike back, instead, we are going to hand over what is essentially a very high prize. We're going to do this political marriage that that could be done with, say, a foreign power like France or Spain in order to get more foreign support that could be used to crush Scotland to instead say, well, now that you've married into our family, please don't hurt us. Those things don't really go together with the expectations of the time, and thus they are creating this negative reaction amongst the English lords. Certainly amongst both sides, I think you would be hard-pressed not to find a sympathetic resentment. Both groups, the English and the Scots, would treat this as a kind of blood feud. And once it reaches the point of this kind of feud, there is almost a patriotic duty to shed blood on behalf of those who have lost it. And so we can see that there is a group disapproval. There is a breaking of custom and taboos that is being done by Queen Isabella and Roger Mortimer in forging a peace that is breaking or against the sympathetic resentment that the English feel towards the Scottish populace. They share that resentment because they all, as a group, feel affected by the Scottish attacks. Let's take a moment to compare what we've read over the last couple of weeks with some accounts from modern sources. In this case, I'm going to return once again to The Plantagenets by Dan Jones to get a quick summary of the events that we've been talking about and see how The Chronicle's account compares to what we've found after many years of hindsight and research. In Scotland, things fared far worse. Border raids continued from February to the summer with bands of Scots crossing into northern England to burn and plunder as they pleased. At the same time, as the terms of the Treaty of Paris were being put before a disappointed Edward III in Lincolnshire, royal orders were heading north for an old-fashioned feudal muster of troops at Newcastle-upon-Tyne and York. 
Edward and his mother travelled to York in late May, where they met with a band of 500 Flemish knights under Isabella's continental ally, John of Hainault. This elite fighting unit made itself immediately unpopular with the citizens of England's second city by fighting with the English troops, rampaging in violent disorder through the streets of York. Despite this unpromising background, Edward left Isabella in York in early July and set out for the Scottish border, aiming to meet the enemy who were amassed under the veteran commander Sir James Douglas. Remember there was a note earlier in the Chronicle, when we are referring to William Douglas in the Chronicle, we are referring to James Douglas in actual fact, and bring them into battle. The mission was a disaster. Douglas spent several weeks dodging his English pursuers before abruptly changing tack at the end of the month. He fell upon the royal camp near Stanholm Park near Durham, causing havoc, scattering the king's attendants, and according to one chronicle, riding to the middle of the encampment, always crying, Douglas, and stroke aside two or three cords of the king's tent. Several days later, Douglas took his rampant troops on a final retreat back into Scotland. Edward was said by several chroniclers to have been so enraged at his own failure that he wept with fury. Well might he have done, the campaign ran through funds so quickly that the crown jewels had to be pawned to keep the English government solvent. By the Treaty of Edinburgh Northampton, so called because it was sealed in Edinburgh by Robert the Bruce in early 1328 and subsequently ratified in an English parliament held in May at Northampton, Mortimer and Isabella accepted that they could not afford to wage a war in the north. They settled with the Scots, disgracefully giving up England's claim to overlordship in Scotland for a paltry £20,000. Scotland was recognised as a sovereign kingdom ruled over by Bruce and his heirs and constrained by the border as it had been in Alexander III's time. Edward's six-year-old sister, Joanna, was betrothed and swiftly married to Bruce's infant son, David. This did little to obscure the fact that everything the English had fought for since Edward I's glorious war had begun in 1295 was forfeited in a stroke. This quick passage is almost less than a page in the book and is a very quick summary of something that took us two weeks to talk through a huge chapter of Wasar's Chronicle, largely because I think that the Chronicle was looking to say much where there wasn't quite as much to be said. Certainly, if Dan Jones is the more correct person in this case, then it is rightly said that the English suffered a major setback for absolutely no gain, and were forced to recognize a hard truth that they simply didn't have the capacity to fight a war, whether they had troops or not, they simply couldn't afford it, and were forced to give up a huge amount of gains that had been worked for by the Plantagenet family since Edward I, simply because they couldn't do anything but give it up. They were trapped in a corner of their own bad decisions. It doesn't make anything that they did less popular, but it certainly provides a contrasting opinion of exactly how trapped the English monarchy was. They theoretically had funds and knights and power, but without quick action, all those things evaporated one after the other. First the funds went, then the knights went, then their suzerainty over Scotland. Everything was interconnected and they weren't maintaining the machinery of their empire. 
there's a lot of reasons for that and I'm sure we'll see some of them coming up and we'll see how those particular parts of English rulership change or don't as we go forward. But certainly this new perspective lends some light on the decisions that were made at the time. I'm going to read another section of a different book. In this case, I'm reading The Hundred Years' War by Edouard Perroy. That is another summary of some of the events we've been talking about that does a good job of explaining why, even though it must have been clear to many people in positions of power that things were not possible and that the machinery of government was not able to just churn out new wars and soldiers and money to make these things possible, that the people involved, the people at the time, would have felt disappointed, discontent, and been pushing for more. This is from Chapter 2, England in 1328. The country over which reigned a dynasty French in origin by marriage and in taste, the Plantagenets, was neither as large nor as rich as that whose destiny the Capetian sovereigns had hitherto guided. Despite their recent but very imperfectly fulfilled attempts, the Plantagenets were still far from controlling the whole of the British Isles. Over the Kingdom of Scotland, the kings of England had for centuries exercised a nominal suzerainty, which Edward I had been bent upon making effective, by methods very like those that the Capetians had used in Guinea and Flanders. First, he supported a sovereign of his own choice, then he confiscated the little northern kingdom. But ten years of almost ceaseless struggle, 1296 to 1307, gave the Plantagenets only fleeting success. When the knighthood of Edward II was crushed by the Scottish Highlanders in June 1314, just as the Flanders militia 12 years earlier cut the nobility of France to pieces at Courtrai, Scottish independence was registered by the facts. The border countries, Cumberland, Northumberland, Durham, got nothing out of the war but ruin constantly repeated by the raids of hostile troops. I've made note a couple of times about how the Scots must feel, again, about constant aggression over that period, but I think it's worth remembering as well that the north of England probably felt a similar way. They had seen many soldiers come and go, some on their side, but plenty there to raid them. Anyone who owned land around that area would have gone from collecting sizable rents to collecting basically nothing. Their people would not have been able to farm, build a life, and thus the lords would be poor. Certainly in Parliament, those lords would have been the first to stand up and say, peace, security, defence will be our main priority in the north of England, but the main priority of England itself should be to put down the Scottish threat so that those things may be maintained. After all, it was both in their self-interest monetarily, but for their own safety. They were charged with defending the north of England, and they would be on the front lines every time the Scots attacked. Alright, I think that's enough for this week's discussion. Next week, we're going to have a look at international affairs, when we see who the new king of France shall be and how that comes about. I look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for joining me again, and I'll see you next time for more Chronicles The Hundred Years' War.